and welcome to Defining Equity, a show meant to center and celebrate folks living at the margins. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about SOGI data collection, or the data collection of sexual orientation and gender identity data, and essentially how that informs a lot of the work that we do with health departments um, and the importance of that. And so in this conversation, I'm actually going to be talking to two guests, um, and we'll be sort of exploring a partnership that they were able to, to get started through the New York State Department of Health. So today I'm joined by Ms. Cecilia Gentili and Rosie Galvin. Um, Ms. Gentili currently serves as the Director of Policy and Public Affairs at GMHC, the world's largest and leading provider of HIV-AIDS prevention, care, and advocacy. Originally from Argentina, Ms. Gentili started working as an intern at the LGBT Center in New York City, where she found her passion for advocacy and services. She went on to run this transgender health program at Apicha CHC from 2012 to 2016. She's also a contributor to Trans Body Trans Selves, a resource for the transgender community, and is a collaborator with TransLatina Network. For fun, she acts and loves doing storytelling events where she talks about her life experiences. She's very passionate about advocating for her community, especially transgender women with a Latina background and a history of sex work, drug use, and incarceration. Rosie Galvin um, is a queer Dominican artist, public health, and social justice advocate from the pre-gentrified Lower East Side of Manhattan, currently residing in Albany, New York. Rosie completed her undergraduate degree at Columbia University, double majoring in sociology and human rights with a minor in environmental science. Rosie also has a master's degree in social work with over 14 years of experience working in community organizations with a special focus on LGBTQ sexual health, HIV STD prevention, group facilitation, systems change, and community engagement. In her current role with the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute, Rosie manages $1.9 million in HIV STD prevention funds. She provides cutting-edge technical assistance and capacity-building opportunities for contracted agencies, in addition to other duties such as processing new budgets, reviewing grant applications, and program data evaluation. In her spare time, Rosie is a visual artist and activist. In her current series, Ancestral Vessels of Feminist Resistance, Rosie creates vibrant paintings that explore the power to reclaim the physical realm and thrive after acts of gender-based violence. You can learn more about her work at www.rosiesunshinepaints.com. Whew! Okay, so <laughs> introductions done. It's so good to meet you. How are you both doing? Doing yes, good? I'm doing great. Wonderful. Great. Thank Wonderful. you for having us. Of course, of course. And I must say, I mean, before we get started, y'all are so cool. Like reading those bios, I'm like, oh my God, I want to paint and like <laughs> do all that. That's so cool. That's so cool. So I guess before we get started with this conversation on um, Soji Data Collection, I'd love to just hear more about, about you all. So would you mind just telling us a bit more about, I guess, like, you know, like your, your job titles, where you grew up, ages, um, any fun facts of that nature? Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yes, my name is Rosie Galvan. Uh, my art name is Rosie Sunshine. And my job title is I'm a health program administrator here at the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute. I was born and raised in New York City, and I currently live in Albany. Um, and I like to think of my job, you know, I do contract management, but I also like to think of my job as um, harnessing opportunities for systems changes. I'm a macro social worker, so I find that my time is best utilized addressing root causes of systemic um, issues. Um, yeah, that's what that's what I do for work. Mm, cool, cool, cool. And Cecilia? 
Rosie is absolutely fabulous. Like when you were reading and you said that she's like working for 14 years, I'm like, how come she's, I thought she was like 16. <laughs> <It's not> 16. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think like, you know, some people that are so fresh and like, and nice, like Rosie, m- makes them feel like they're even younger of what they are. Um, so I, I, I can't believe that you've been doing this work for so long, Rosie. Thank you so much. I'll send you the check later. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll actually be 37 in October. Um, yeah. <laughs> hashtag melanin. Nah, yeah, just yes, honey. That's the Dominican. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, oh in that note, I'm Argentinian mm-hmm. and like age like Argentinian people, which is kind of like um, normal uh, aging. Um, and I am 46. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been in this country for 18 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 10 of them as um, an undocumented person. I came from Argentina escaping um, a hard reality at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I uh, live in this country as an undocumented person for about 10 years. And um, um, because of, um, I was, a, um, um, while being a sex worker, um, I was arrested and I also was like a drug user and I was arrested because of that. And um, then I was arrested by immigration uh, and uh, I was uh, in deportation uh, with a deportation order. And um, I um, started an asylum process, and I got it. And mm-hmm. um, um, I took care of um, my uh, uh, some of my addiction problems, and um, I've been clean for about eight years now. Mm-hmm. About the same time that I've been um, a documented resident uh, of this country, mm-hmm. and uh, that's when I'm um, in my road to recovery. I uh, went to the LGBT center, like you went to, like you said in my in my bio, mm-hmm. and I got an internship there, and um, that's how I started working on um, on services and and and, and the nonprofit companies mm. and um yeah so that that's what i've been doing and um actually now i'm the director or managing director of policy mm. at gmas i was just um um promoted uh, last week so i'm a manager congratulations thank you and i also um i started working um um uh, consulting for the aids institute mm. uh after um, uh, uh, applying for 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 the consultancy for the trans and gender nonconforming um, work uh, with the AIDS Institute, so that so that's what I do. Cool, awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, great, Rosie. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about about your role? Sure. So, um, Cecilia, you're incredible. Just need to say that because I. My role here, you know, my title is Health Program Administrator, which is a fancy title for contract manager. So I work in our division of HIV, STD, and hepatitis C prevention. And um, what we do as contract managers is we get assigned various organizations that have received funds through the AIDS Institute, through our prevention division. Um, 
So right now I'm currently working with four organizations across the state. Sometimes that number increases or decreases depending on how uh, folks here shuffle the contracts around. So I do some boring, what I like to call boring stuff, like processing budgets and, <laughs> you know, making sure people's work plans are submitted. But the fun stuff really is in visiting the organizations and building relationships with them mm -hmm. to help identify where in their processes they can improve so that they can better meet their deliverables, but also just to um, make their jobs a bit easier. Because, you know, nonprofits tend to not always work the smartest. We, we tend to work very hard, you know? Right. <laughs> in the smartest ways because if you're on the ground, it's difficult to take time to create processes mm -hmm. and um, think about things through a planning lens. So that's what I do as my actual job function. Um, but being that I was in a nonprofit for so long, I've only been with the state. In October, it'll be about three years. Mm. Um, three years in October. So considering my whole adulthood has been in nonprofit, mm. I'm just wearing many, many hats. And it's something that is difficult for me to transition out of. So I got involved with several projects here. One um, is the Trans and Gender Nonconforming Work Group. Um, but for that first started with the advisory group, which I know we'll talk about a little mm -hmm. later and then also really spearheading a health equity initiative here. So I have my full-time job, but then I also like to say I have my part-time job, which is more like my passion project mm -hmm. and utilize the skill sets I acquired prior to, to starting my role here. Would you mind telling us a little bit about some of those health equity initiatives? Sure. So again, being in the macro social work world, um, I really like to look at what are the root causes of issues and, you know, just having done so much, read so much research over the years on, on health inequities and, you know, really any, any meeting you'll go to related to HIV and STDs, but also other health outcomes, mm -hmm. um, like the same folks are affected over and over again. And, um, the research also points to, aside from pointing out the raw data around health outcomes, it also points to the fact that biases in systems cause illness. And I mm. found that a lot of our interventions are only geared towards individuals and communities and their behaviors. But I see very little about systemic behavior change. Um, so I wanted to, you know, with the end with the end the epidemic, you know, um, energy that we're in, there's a lot more room for innovative ideas and to have more difficult conversations. So, you know, I just, I, along with a few other folks here, proposed a plan for the AIDS Institute to start to really address how we inadvertently um, can fuel epidemics in our mm -hmm. systems and policies, um, but also in the biases we bring mm. to our um, so right now we're in very new to the process. We're just doing some fact finding, connecting with other, um, state health departments across the country, like Louisiana department of health, New York city department of health, who've already moved forward, um, with these types of initiatives. And we're developing a staff survey to assess, um, where all of our staff are in terms of health equity principles, how they would measure their own skill sets but also their perceived level of importance in their role. Mm. Uh, so once we have the survey and analyze the results, we're going to expand the work group. We're going to host focus groups and then develop a more concrete plan that will roll out throughout the course, I imagine, of three to five years, because um, it's going to take quite a while to 
you know, we're a pretty big institution. So even in a small agency, it would take several years to really address um, some of these, you know, root causes that I mentioned. Yeah, especially given that a lot of these root causes are, you know, already years in the making, you know, it's certainly not an overnight process to, to overturn that. Um, But yeah, thank you for for sharing that. Um, Cecilia, I would love to hear more about your your day to day work. Uh, well, you know, um, I one of my biggest achievement, achievements um, around work has been avoiding um, boring stuff. So I only do fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I work in, uh, as a director of policy uh, at, at GMAC, which involves uh, a lot of, you know, uh, policy work in like the, you know, city level, state level and federal, um, you know, with the city, uh, um, you know, we make sure that uh, policies that, that um, come from um, city, uh, city hall and um, the mayor's office are like, you know, aligned with what we believe, you know, in terms of um, HIV prevention and health equity. Um, uh, and uh, this, we do the same thing in the, with the state and with the, and with the federal government. So, you know, it's a lot of coalition work um, that I really enjoy doing a lot. And it's a lot of like, you know, spending time with um, actually um, elected officials mm-hmm. talking to and like um, trying to um, get them uh, understand uh, what our point of view is around different topics. Mm. Um, uh, that's what I do at GMAC and um, here as a consultant for um, the Department uh, of Health, the State Department of Health, um, I have different tasks. Now I'm working on a webinar. Um, that's what's taking, taking most of my time. Uh, I'm working on a webinar um, about the new SOGI questions that, that um, just mm. came up um, for data collection. Um, so I've been having a lot of fun stuff to do, like having doing like recording interviews uh, with um, uh, uh, folks that identify as trans, uh, uh, gender non-conforming or gender non-binary. Um, so that's that's what I do. Wow! Wow! Well, yeah. Before we, I guess, dive into the Soji um, discussion, just just briefly, I would love to hear kind of what got you both into this work um it sounds like y'all sort of like touched on it like a little bit but yeah i'd love to sort of hear about the thinking um you know that kind of predated the you know the jobs the internships the degrees things like things of that nature Mm -hmm. a good question um i i find that i've always been you know kind of a pain in the ass so (laughs) (laughs) I remember being a, you know, a young girl, 10 years old, you know, I was raised very, very Catholic and, you know, just asking really tough questions during Sunday school. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've always been a feminist. I've always been like, well, why can't I be an altar girl? Because back then that wasn't allowed, you know, or why can't women be priests? And just asking things about like, I'm not quite sure why people can't be gay and why that's wrong. So I've always just, you know, I don't know if it's my Libra moon or whatever, but (laughs) 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 I've always been in my mind, someone who just notices injustice and, um, you know, having grown up in a very poor neighborhood, immigrant parents, you know, it's like my, my, when I think about the World Trade Center, I remember seeing the Twin Towers from my neighborhood 
And just always noticing the stark difference in the way Wall Street looked from a distance mm-hmm. versus what my neighborhood looked like with project buildings. And, and it just seemed like a very forgotten place. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I like to say pre-gentrified Lower East Side, because I find that with gentrifications, our history is getting erased, too. It's not just that we are not able to live there anymore. But, um, you know, so I've, I've always been passionate about it. And then when I went to school, it didn't change And, you know, long story short, my senior year, a friend of mine who I went to school with uh, was already in the field working Mm -hmm. at a Dominican organization in Washington Heights. And she was doing HIV prevention work. And at that time I was 23. So, you know, quite a while ago. And she said that they were looking for someone to, you know, do some part time prevention work. And the rest is history. Mm -hmm. So I fell into the HIV STD prevention world very, very young in my career. Um, I mean, I've, I've always worked, you know, but in terms of like my career work, it was Mm -hmm. the first, you know, entry into this world. Um, and what I like about it is that, you know, when you focus on something like HIV or STDs or really any health, um, outcome, but specifically this, I find that it helps talk about other issues Mm -hmm. because it is a social illness, you know, caused by a lot of social barriers, So it also helps folks talk about like consent and what do you, what, what turns you on and sexual health. And, you know, so I thought it was a diverse field in terms of what you can approach as for the solutions. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what got me into this work. And then of course, doing HIV and STD worlds, unfortunately is super stigmatized in LGBTQ community. So that sort of led into me working at different pride centers and, you know, um, planning pride events and just doing a lot of queer, queer work as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that sort of organ- organically evolved in that sense. Got you. Got you. Cool. Cool. And Cecilia, what about you? Well, I'm, um, I, I, um, as I said, you know, I'm from Argentina, and um, I went to music school. I played the French horn. Um, oh, wow. And But, you know, when I started my transition, like, you know, it wasn't a thing that you could do, like go to school as a trans person, um, you know, in the 80s. Uh, you know, Argentina was just coming out of the dictatorship. So, mm-hmm. you know, the mentality was still very, very oppressive. So um, I chose to be you know, who I was, and I, I stopped going to school, and um, um, so, you know, that's that's the, edu- the little education that I have is around that, but, you know, the big education that I have came about when, I, you know, um, after, you know, I told you that I was arrested, and uh, I was in jail, and I was in immigration uh, detention, and um, I went to uh, treatment for uh, and drug use, and mm. uh, I started going to um, the center, uh, the LGBT center here in New York City, and um, I started taking trainings, and I noticed, like, you know, I took a training on, on sex work um, mm. done by a person that um, really didn't have any, that she knew a lot, you know, maybe she learned a lot, uh, you know, by reading, but didn't have a background on sex work. And I took trainings, uh, you know, about trans people done by cis people. And I took trainings about, like, mm. drug use by people that um, that have had K-sex but didn't didn't know uh, didn't have experience on on 
on drug use. Um, and I took trainings about homelessness done by people that they were never homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that was fine. But I thought, like, maybe I could just, you know, uh, make some some kind of career of, like, you know, life experience and, you know, all the things that I know because I live through them. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I found people that thought that that was great and helped me do it. And that's how I started, you know, working in uh, nonprofits and doing services. And, you know, and uh, I, as I said, like, you know, I went to Apicha to run the trans program and like all that life experience came very handy to uh, uh, very, very handy when 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 it was about offering services for people that were going through the same things that I did go through before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, it, I think the program was very successful because most of my clients uh, were able to see themselves reflected on me because we had somehow many experience in common. Mm-hmm. So I that's what that was one of the reasons because the program was really, really successful. Um, I started that program with nine patients and when I left after four years, they had six hundred and twenty five. Oh my gosh. So like you know, people really was were drawn to you know to the program when right. I went and I believe because it's like, you know, we, we, we were able to talk, you know, about, you know, uh, different topics from the same point of view, right? I, I know I know what it looks like to be homeless and what it looks like to be in jail and what it looks like to be a sex worker and what it looks like to, you know, do drugs and what it looks like to be an undocumented immigrant or what it looks like to be an immigrant. So, you know, I, I, I was very empowered by a group of wonderful people to take ownership of my knowledge uh, uh, mm-hmm. that from from life experience and you know i guess i was um adventurous enough to to say like yes i can have a career doing services and doing policy and doing things like that and i did it and here i am and i was uh, mm-hmm. and i i guess you know success is different to everybody right, right but you know for right. my idea of success um i've been very successful yeah that's amazing. I mean, I would certainly agree with that as well. It sounds like you've, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think often, you know, we get like, th- that's such a good point when we think about, you know, gatekeeping and decision making around um, these issues, like just how oftentimes when we, you know, in- enter institutions and kind of like work in them professionally, um, you know, just like sort of the implicit ways that we start to like devalue people's experience. Like, you know, for example, like, it is absurd that like in a job application where you're going to be talking about uh, say an issue of homelessness that like if you were someone who's experienced homelessness who's actually navigated these systems that that in itself isn't considered as valid as say having you know certain letters behind your name or you know something like that it's it's not to say that like having that education isn't valuable but i think that like we there we do need to widen like just how we can like what we consider to be relevant experience um and how we consider investing in people. Education and, you know, and, and letters, be, you know, after your names are wonderful. And I encourage everybody to have them. Mm-hmm. But if you don't and, and, and you do have some, 
you know, valuable knowledge of, you know, that doesn't come from a school. I always like to encourage people to, you know, use it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, you know, uh, most of my friends, like, that they happen to be trans, uh, you know, are like, oh, you know, I'm looking for a job. I don't know. Can you help me write, like, a, a cover letter? And I'm always like, you know, let's disclose it. Let's disclose that you're trans. Like, you know, you're trans, and this is an, an amazing thing. And everybody should should want you want to have you working for them because mm-hmm. being trans, you know, make you resilient and make you strong and make you a great worker. Like, because, you know, we work really hard just to be so imagine how hard I can work as an employee. So, I'm, I, you know, I'm always like, you know, trying to um, encourage uh, people to uh, put whatever whatever life experience they have as part of, uh, uh, of an empowering part of, of, of their, the, the road to their goals. Mm. Yeah, that's real. That's real. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, you know, we've, Thank you so much for sharing all of that, both of you. Um, You know, I I love to just sort of get, you know, like context and like history behind people. And I think that like both of your stories are just really amazing. And so I love to just talk about um, Sochi Data. Like, can we like, would you all mind before, I guess, diving into um, the partnership that you all were able to garnish, like how, like basically just like the utility of Sochi Data Collection? Yeah. The utility of it, the importance of it, um, and sort of what the current landscape looks like. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I just wanted to echo what Cecilia mentioned because part of the health equity initiative, one of the goals is to reframe expertise. So, in in thinking about data as an example, if you're able to navigate SAS or you know analyze data sets or work in surveillance, but you where you're not familiar with those data points as lived experiences in human beings and communities and networks. And, you know, I find that um, there's a gap of knowledge there. So I do just want to echo how important it is to have folks with that lived experience be seen as the experts and then paid for their expertise. Um, So that's a side note, but it is related to this process with the SOGI data. So everything we do in public health is driven by surveillance, is driven by data. And if folks aren't in it, then how can we respond? Um, our funding is determined by the, by the numbers. Our approaches are determined by the numbers and um, just awareness campaigns as well. So, you know, g- given the fact that um, sexual minorities and folks of different gender identities do bear the brunt of, of you know, the HIV and STD epidemic, mm-hmm. it only makes sense that we would want to capture that information more accurately so that we're better able to respond. Right. Uh, so that's, you know, the importance of it. Um, would you want to add anything, Cecilia? Uh, no, that's pretty much like, you know, what, what, uh, what it is. Like, you know, it is. And, and, and you know, for a person that identifies, um, you know, outside, you know, um, uh, you know, binary ideas of, of gender and, uh, and, and, and the normals, uh, um, um, formal sexual education not formal uh, no, no no more like usual sexual um, sexual orientations and like uh, uh, as 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 a person you know that that gets services too you know it's it's so important it's so empowering 
you know, to when 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 somebody is getting that information from you, to find a place of belonging. Like you know, I I just went to like the hospital, the the um, the doctor to a specialist, like uh, and it was a lung specialist. They usually don't care about like anything. And when I sat there and I saw like, uh, you know, choices for sex assigned at birth and choices for gender identity and choices for sexual orientation. Mm. And they asked me for my freaking gender pronoun. I was like, oh, my God, this is heaven. I died. And I, <laughs> I mean, it is so great to, to feel like, you know, that it is a space for you to be in, in inside the whole uh, data system and the whole uh, collection of information system and like it, it, it feels great to 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 have a, a space in in this whole system after not having one for so long you know mm-hmm. um, you know I was there checking you know, as MSM when when I was getting a, 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 an HIV test like you know ten years ago, mm-hmm. you know that's humiliating, you know. Right. So having like you know having like you know um, uh, opportunities to um, be counted and and it 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 changed the whole, it changed the whole experience around medical services. Mm. Yeah. So now just, yeah, tell me all about you all's partnership. I know we kind of like, te- like sort of gently mentioned the, um, transgender, gender nonconforming, um, advisor group and sort of that work. But yeah, just give me the whole rundown of like, you know, how that got started. What were some of the recommendations you were able to come up with? Yeah. Just that whole initiative. I'd love to just hear all about it. It's funny because when I saw the question, I was like, how did that, how did this start? I, I no idea. I have no idea. I have no recollection of how this happened. <laughs> I remember one day taking the train to Albany because I was to a meeting, but I don't know who invited me. I don't know how I got there. I don't know how this thing started. I knew that I got an email inviting me and I thought like, oh, I love Upstate. I'm going to Albany for a day. <laughs> and uh, I got there. So I think Rosie is going to be able to give you more information about that. Oh, yeah, that's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know um, our Office of Planning and Community Affairs at the AIDS Institute. Um, that's where the, and the epidemic blueprint came out of and... And um, what they realized pretty early on after the blueprint came out, for folks who don't know what that is, it's it's a long document of things that we need to do in New York State to end the, ep- the HIV epidemic by 2020, meaning that we will have less than 750 new infections by then, mm. therefore longer making HIV an epidemic in our state. Um, so the blueprint is super comprehensive. Um, however, they had the foresight to know that a one-size-all fit a a one size um all approach isn't going to be effective for everyone so what they did was develop several advisory groups based on different identities mm-hmm. um so to create their own list of recommendations of what we need to do in this case to end HIV for trans and gender nonconforming and non-binary new yorkers mm-hmm. some other advisory groups um one was for older adults living with HIV 
one words for Latino, cis, gay, and bi men, black, cis, gay, and bi men. Um, there's one up for um, new migrants um, and folks who speak languages other than English. So one for young adults, et cetera, et cetera. So all these different advisory groups created a, their own list of recommendations. And I got invited to participate at that point as a note taker for the group mm-hmm. um, because of my former work. Um, some folks in the advisory group knew me um, and trusted me to be in the space um, while other agency to staff weren't there. Mm. So it was just me taking notes and this advisory group, which was made up of about 14 or 15 um, trans and gender nonconforming and non-binary leaders in our state mm. who work at agencies that we fund, but also do their own consultation work and And they wore different hats as well. So we had folks doing direct services. We had folks doing policy work, trainings. Um, So it was diverse in age and roles in region in terms of where people live in the state. Um, But Cecilia can talk a bit more, I imagine, about what that process was. Because it was really led by that group. All the recommendations were created by them. Um, And I was just there to support. So... I'm not sure how that process was for you, Cecilia. I'm really curious to hear what that was, felt like for you. It was super interesting. Um, uh, as I said, like, I don't know how I got there. I guess somebody put my name down and I got an email. Uh, but, um, you know, when I went to the first meeting, it was, um, it was like really um, reflective. The group was like, like, like a like the most accurate reflection of community that I've experienced, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the variety of like, you know, uh, uh, transness as um, in terms of gender identity, mm-hmm. but also in terms of race, in terms of uh, um, a, a document status, in terms of like, um, um, uh, f- families uh, of choice uh, inside the community. So, like you know, it was like you know a a, a white uh, trans woman with a college degree sitting next to uh, a black gender non-binary person without education next to each other and talking about this, how the same issue applies to them in different ways because of those intersections. Mm-hmm. So like it, it was it was very reflective of intersectionality, the group. So we saw how you know um, um, uh, health uh, um, you know really take a, a special um, uh, way because of these intersections, right? And, and we were able to all sit there and, you know, and we were able to, you know, work on uh, different issues um, uh, at the same time. And then uh, we'll get together and discuss everything. Uh, and that uh, we came up with... Um, uh, seven seven topics, right, uh, Rosie? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that are you know what we came uh, uh, with uh, um, as as you know what are the the things that we should really work around in order to have an impact on HIV 
and they are um, very uh, various issues like you know in, in immigration like uh, um, uh, unemployment like employment issues like many many other things mm-hmm. um, yes mm-hmm. and so you know we came up with all with different recommendations um, I was a uh, uh, I, I remember being in the group of uh, in the immigration uh, group and um, uh, I don't remember which was the other uh, the other group. Um, so you know we had different um, different um, recommendations and uh, Rosie was uh, working on putting them together and she was very helpful and um, kind of like, Rosie wasn't the in the in the group, but you know she was very good at not being there, just um, supporting and 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 you know she was fundamental in like putting all this stuff together. So yeah, she was great. Mm. And would y'all mind just going through some of the? I mean, you know, you you certainly don't have to go through each one at length, but yeah, I would love to hear next to Soji Data Collection some other um, some other items that y'all gather from the group. Yeah, um, some of them, you know, were related to criminal justice as well and the intersection of immigration there. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, um, appropriate housing for folks who are detained and um, some other things were around education as well. I found what I really liked about the recommendations is that even within the categories, there were subcategories. So part of it was for the system. So in this case, like Department of Corrections or mm-hmm. ICE, but then there was also components for for TGNC and non-binary folks too. So with education, it wasn't just holding folks accountable for you know how young people are treated in schools, therefore increasing dropout rates, which leads to you know all these other barriers and just just a lack of safety in general. Um, but also like for for trans folks too, like getting together and having like skill shares or, you know, creating BOCES programs or harnessing the strengths of the community to then create different programs to support each other, as well as for um, employment. So parts of it are addressed to Department of Labor, but then what are programs that we can create now to support trans and gender non-binary folks too? so I really like that twofold approach. And then there was sort of like a last set of recommendations specific to the AIDS Institute. And that's where the SOGI data collection came up, but also the way that we talk about and I, and collect risk categories. Um, Cause mm. right now risk categories are very conflated with identities, which is an accurate one. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's also very stigmatizing like MSM really shouldn't be a risk category. Are we talking about, unprotected vaginal anal intercourse are we talking about you know like what are we really saying when we're saying someone's at risk or is in quote-unquote risky behaviors um but then things like addressing the fact that we don't have gender neutral bathrooms in our space and and then the whole concept of our funded providers like we we fund so many providers in the state and how do we ensure that their services are culturally relevant and that they're supporting their staff who right. are members of the community as well. And thinking about things like we mentioned earlier about employment practices, if you're only requiring if you're if you're requiring folks to have a college degree, then who are you leaving out? And what expertise is then not at the table? Right. Mm. So things like that. That's mm. that's 
that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, for me, I remember like, you know, uh, it was um, more uh, closer to, you know, my beginning uh, uh, working uh, in this field. So uh, when I went um, to these meetings, I thought like it was everything was going to be just about um, uh, sexual um, behavior um, and stuff. So it was so refreshing for me to, you know, uh, see that, you know, that they were looking to, you know, learn like what other things have an impact on, you know, on HIV um, prevention and treatment and like, you know, the recommendations being a, a reflection of, of those conversations that we had. And, you know, uh, we, we said like, you know, well, employment plays the big role in, uh, in HIV prevention, education, like, you know, the fact that, you know, individuals need uh, equal opportunities around education have like a huge impact on, on HIV and, uh, and the idea of like having a, a healthcare that uh, is uh, comprehensive of their identities as trans people, uh, you know, has ha um, a, a huge impact on um, on HIV. And the same thing with, uh, you know, interactions with law enforcement or, or as we were talking before, immigration or housing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was for me, it was kind of like, oh, this is really, really cool. You know, for me, it was a very, very engaging um, the way of how uh, this um, topic was approached. Mm. That's real. That's real. Thank you for that. Um, but yeah, but thank you both so much for all of that information. You know, I think there's so much greatness and importance in these kind of partnerships between health departments and um, community stakeholders and making sure that, you know, our programming is informed by, um, you know, the actual lived experience by people who, you know, would sort of be on the receiving end of them. So do you all have any, I guess, any advice or um, any recommendations for any health departments that are looking to start these kind of partnerships um, or increase community buy-in when it comes to their programming? Yes, do it. Do it. <laughs> Real. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. Yeah, just do it. <laughs> it does work, you know. It it does work. Uh, it is it is it is so important to to you know uh, have representation of the communities that you're serving in the development of the interventions that are going to directly affect them. You know, right. uh, it, it it makes a huge difference and a positive difference to have the voices that you are trying to serve um, being part of the crafting of the interventions of, that are going to do uh, that uh, for you. So it, it, is, it, is, it is incredible and uh, it does work. So yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> that's real, that's real. Yes. I agree. I think that... Um... It's really important to acknowledge, acknowledge that community members are experts in their own lives and therefore they hold the solutions that they need. Um, right. And I think that in addition to creating these types of partnerships and advisory groups and feedback loops, um, we really do need to address the hiring issue as well. True. Because um, as a more long-term solution, although even if we have the most representative staff, I would still want to continue advisory groups like this mm -hmm. because, you know, we can't bear the burden of speaking for our entire communities. Um, 
However, I do feel that um, it's important to have an economic justice lens Mm -hmm. on these types of um, projects because often folks in most marginalized identities often have to act as the teachers um, and often do so without any any pay. Um, So, you know, yes and is sort of my approach is um, while we're working to address systemic issues that lead to, you know, not not hiring folks who are representative, like the things we already spoke about, like right. the education requirements and and really making sure job descriptions do highlight that expertise is, is needed and preferred um, in terms of lived experience and community representation. I do think it's also super important to make sure that, that there's funding available mm-hmm. um, as well to make sure that folks, in addition to being paid and given a stipend, that they're actually being paid for, for the outcomes that we get out of right. their contributions um so that's sort of my tidbit around that it's to me it's not it's still not the most ideal because it's done as free labor which i find is problematic and part of the problem that's 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 real (laughs) that's so real so i didn't mean to laugh but no that's like that's so true it is it is yeah still certainly part of the problem um but certainly a step in the right direction so yeah but i i think so long as we're making sure that like we're not growing complacency and like oh well like we did this and it was fine it's like no we can always like like you said like kind of be more economically minded and making sure that we're not like we're being conscientious of like whose time are we actively compensating and like who you know whose labor is considered more valuable like kind of implicitly in our systems um but yeah exactly the other part that I feel has made this project successful is we didn't end the involvement at the recommendations, right. but also through the implementation. So developing the new terms for the data categories, developing the definitions for those terms, and getting a rollout plan mm-hmm. as to what we would need to do. Therefore, we're creating the webinar that Cecilia mentioned earlier. Right. And so really involving um the community and the implementation, I think that's so key. And I, and I can't stress that part enough because mm-hmm. we would have made a lot of mistakes if we hadn't right. <laughs> and we will anyway, but it reduces right. you know, and it just helps us have a much better outcome right. with continued involvement. No, that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> and I guess, you know, before we wrap up, um, what would I guess be the ideal future for, you know, for these partnerships? Um, you know, sort of like this continued work, I guess, what does it look like maybe like a year from now, maybe five years from now, sort of a future insight on that? Well, I, I, um, I think, uh, you know, um, I, I don't, um, I don't see, uh, anything, uh, uh, going, um, wrong with this partnership. It's, you know, I, I see it as a, as something that will continue and will continue to develop on its own uh, and uh, naturally, you know, becoming what it has to become. Um, so um, I think we will uh, see how uh, how the the partnership continues developing. I don't. Uh, I I I really hope for this to um, have. Uh, the results that we were looking for and uh, so far we're getting there little by little so yeah uh, that's true yeah that's true yeah i agree and also um 
it would be really cool to just normalize it as part of our process. So thinking about, you know, all the different divisions and Mm -hmm. all the different tasks that we do as a health department and to look for more opportunities to increase that, that collaboration. So when we're writing RFAs, for instance, which could be a little complicated Mm because you can't necessarily have folks that are going to compete for the funding help you write the funding application, but I think there's room for at least helping us decide what those program components can look like um, and what interventions are worth funding and which ones aren't as successful. Um, So I would like to see it sort of infused throughout um, as a norm, you know, an organizational norm. Um, So I do think the AIDS Institute does a really phenomenal job I do have to say it's pretty neat working at a place where they don't just collect the feedback just to say they did it, but they actually work to implement it. Right. Um, so it'd be neat to see that organically evolve into all the activities that we do. Got you. Got you. Cool. Uh, well, thank you both so much for this really, really interesting conversation. You know, data is just so like, I mean, whether it's like public health, whether it's policy, you know, just whatever realm, like. Yes, it is important as like, you know, as it informs our programming and, you know, sort of policy making and implementation. Um, but Cecilia, like you mentioned earlier, you know, I thought I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up of just like the validation of knowing that like, like an identity that you possess is something that's like captured by different systems and given weight and visibility. Like that's like in itself sort of like validating emotionally and, you know, just just in terms of your own life experience. So I think, I don't know, there's just, there's just so much importance around it, both sort of on an individual level, but also on the systems level. So I just want to thank you both for um, participating in this conversation with me. And I've really, you know, certainly learned a lot about, you know, some great things we could do in the future. Um, so I guess before we like wrap up, wrap up, um, where can we connect with you both? And like, do you have like any final words or anything like that? Well, no, just, you know, thank you for doing this. It was so nice to just, you know, be able to talk a little bit about the work that we're doing here. Um, I uh, believe um, uh, that, you know, we are very, um, I am uh, very um, uh, uh, grateful, uh, you know, for um, the um, initiatives that, you know, the state of New York and the Department of Health uh, had um, started around uh, the work and around uh, uh, partnering with uh, the communities that they're trying to serve. Uh, So, you know, we're very happy and like, uh, you know, uh, New York continues to to be wonderful in in terms of uh, inclusion. And uh, I'm I'm very happy to do this. I I wish uh, um, every state um, take somehow uh, a note of this, and uh, and, and I wish to see um, my community being able to take part of the decisions that um, uh, are implemented uh, through um, the government uh, in other states. Uh, and I can really uh, hope at this time for that, um, and um, you know, hope keeps us working and alive so i i'm I'm not losing that Mm. thank you yes thank you so much for um for taking time to do this i'm excited to know that there's sort of a middle person to help you know because we do a lot of this work and i'm sure other 
folks are doing pretty groundbreaking work too, but we don't often get a chance to hear about that and learn from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited that there's a platform to share our successes um, and to hopefully build off of that collectively to Cecilia's point to, to make things better on a national scale. Right. Um, and yeah, just very grateful. I'm very, very grateful to Cecilia for showing up the way she does and for mm-hmm. be, bringing that much needed expertise to the table now in a paid capacity, which is really exciting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and to the rest of the advisory group, you know, who, who did all this groundwork for us. Um, so yeah, that's, pretty much where I'm at. I'm excited to see the outcomes too, because mm-hmm. we're still sort of the initiate in the initial stages. We just launched the new terms in May. Mm-hmm. Um, so as agencies start to adopt the change, I'm curious to see how how what that looks like and what su- other support they might need. Right. Um, but it's just one step in a in a big direction exactly. to really just address human rights at a basic level. Right. <laughs> no, that's real. <laughs> that's so real. Uh, well, <laughs> Rosie always like um, reject my when I want to give her the award for best cis ally to the trans community. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to insist again. <laughs> I'm not going to do it for the community. I'm going to do it just for myself. Right. So you, because I can't talk for the community, but for me, like you know, uh, you know, she's a great example of like you know what allyship looks like, and like you know being intentional and like understanding that being an ally, you know, takes work, mm-hmm. and that you know being ally an ally is not just saying that you are an ally; it's like working right. and doing what you have to do to own that allyship. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, she's she is a great example of that, and I'm grateful. Because I know that all of this great change somehow uh, came because of the work that she's been doing with another um, group of people. And, uh, you know, um, I think that those initiatives that, you know, come from, uh, from uh, through allyship mm-hmm. are the ones that are successful and the community can see uh, as uh, fruitful. Right. That's real. Thank you That's so real. much. <sighs> I appreciate you, and I will accept it from you, and also, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just hesitant because it's it's my job, right? As the person with privilege, it's, it's your job to do the work, mm-hmm. so, you know, I do it without and needing any gratitude, or, you know, I benefit from my cis privilege every day, mm-hmm. so it's only right that I do something to address, to address that. It's really an unearned experience right. and privilege that I have I would you know I just show up the way I do and because of that I get treated differently and that's not okay so right. it's my job as someone who benefits from that to then do the work to dismantle it so um thank you for seeing me and for uplifting me and just know that it's my role and my responsibility to to do it um wow yeah Ugh. thank you both so 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 much again and Oh, God, what, what an amazing conversation. <laughs> <laughs>